bit somewhere prominent this week and look over the different events available to all of us this summer, special activities, especially for young, uh, the young people of our church. But also notice the Sunday school uh, class offerings for everybody on uh, one side of that insert. And kind of look and see where you might want to go uh, to class this coming summer. It's a great time. Summer is laid back in many respects for us, but it's a great time to dig into the Word, as any time is. And we'll be doing that. Now, in con- connection with it being summer, I decided to take uh, just a few weeks off of Isaiah. Um, we've been working through Isaiah since last August, almost a year. We've got to chapter 39, uh, going to start 40 soon, which is a rapid pace by any stretch. Right? Now, it gets slower, I'm going to tell you honestly, when it gets to chapter 40, and it's a good kind of slow. But uh, we'll pick that up again, Lord willing, in the beginning of August. So I will take uh, several sermons to walk with you uh, through Luke's accounts of several of Jesus' parables. Jesus used parables to teach spiritual truth many times in his ministry. Forty-six parables are recorded in the New Testament. Some of them are repeated in the different Gospels, so there's uh, 30-something that are distinct but 46 uh, total times we have recorded. Now, he probably told parables way more than that. Um, he probably had regular stories he would tell in the places he went. He was an itinerant teacher and preacher. Uh, but the Gospels have recorded for us these 46. And the first that we'll look at comes in Acts cha- or, excuse me, Luke chapter 8. Uh, there are a couple mini parables he gives before chapter 8, but this is the first long one. And it's kind of the paradigm for the other parables where he tells the purpose of using these stories to describe spiritual truth. Um, it's, it's part of his master teaching that he uses these stories. But this sets the stage for the other parables we'll look at over the course of the weeks together uh, that we have this summer. Hear God's word as I read Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 4. This is known as the parable of the sower, but I think you'll agree it's really more about the soil. Hear God's holy word. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but As they go on in their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that, in the good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, 
and bear fruit with patience. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, Where we have ears to hear, please give us clarity about what is true and then what to do from this passage. As we consider the teaching of our Lord Jesus, send your spirit to bring conviction and understanding. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're probably familiar with this story that Jesus tells to describe a spiritual truth. I have seen a picture in my years at various places. I know in the president of Moody Bible Institute's office. There's a picture of the sower. It's been there for 80 years. It's a beautiful painting of this man who's standing in an ancient farm field. You see the dirt behind him, and he's got a a sack that comes over his shoulder and around, and it's loaded with seed. And he's walking through the field, and the scene is him spreading the seed. That's the sower, spreading the seed on the dirt so that it would take root and grow and bear fruit. That's the purpose. Uh, The seed's purpose is to dig deep, penetrate, put roots down, put the plant up, and bear fruit many times more than just that one seed. Hundredfold, as it says, as Jesus says here. That's the sower, and that's the picture of what the work of believers concerns. Sowing the seed of the word. We have the word, we spread the word, we share the word, we disperse the word, we, we put it everywhere we can possibly put it. We are liberal with our application of the word and our spreading of that seed. And in this story, you see very clearly there are different parts. There's the sower, the seed, and the soil. The sower, ultimately, that's God because he produces his word, gives us his word, and then anybody who would take the word and distribute it could be a sower as well. No variation about the sower. The thing that defines the sower is the seed. Uh, The seed is the word of God, nothing more, nothing less. And the sower must disperse the seed. So even though there are different parts in this parable, those two are fixed. It's either the word of God or it's not. If it's the word of God, it's a seed. And the sower's job is to disperse the seed. We know that's clear. The issue is the soil. That has to do with the heart of those who have the word placed upon them, if you will. Now, as you have listened to this story over time, we tell it in Sunday school to children, we've thought about it probably over the years as we have seen those pictures, have heard the story told again, you probably start to think about people you know that fit these categories. I know that's what happens when I read this story especially. As I came to Christ as a teenager, um, there were several other friends of mine around me who had the same experience, at least outwardly. And we were, we were fired up for Christ when we came to the Lord towards the end of high school, I wanted to tell everybody about the message of the gospel. And there were several friends of mine who were like this as well. And I think of how life, how life has gone and tried to figure out what has happened in some of their cases. It's confusing to me because I sat right with them and we had the same experience. And I saw with my own eyes what I think was fruit. It seemed to me to be commitment. Yet I could see when Jesus lays out this story how the soil really determines on the human level, what the Word of God will do with it. Now, I want to stress on the human level. That's what a parable is. It's not like Paul writes where he gets behind the scenes and explains things in categories, which is important for us. Jesus, rather, he's at this moment anyways, in this teaching with parables, he's with his disciples. He has just started to venture out and share the message of the gospel in totality. They had the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of it. Now he's sharing the kingdom of God. 
in the word of God, the kingdom of God, the gospel. These things are meant synonymously when it comes to Jesus preaching and teaching them. Because you can't know any part of the Bible without its connection to its fulfillment in Christ. So whatever he'd be teaching would ultimately be anchored in himself, be anchored in the gospel of faith in Christ for salvation. And so the word of God is that seed that he's spreading, and he's doing so with his disciples watching and a group of faithful women who had joined with them. That's what the first few verses of chapter 8 tells us. So then we get to to verse 4 of chapter 8, and he's spreading the word, and more and more people are listening and following. And he's preparing his immediate followers for what will happen when the word goes forward. There will be different reactions that you will see. You have to know this and understand this. And when you do understand this, it will teach us many things. Now, I can remember a good friend of mine who was, was and is one of the smartest people I've ever met. For him, it was interesting because he came with us to a summer camp towards the end of high school. I think it was in our senior year going into college. It's kind of our last time of hanging out. We invited him to come with. He had not grown up in the church, but he knew the message of the Bible. At least one teacher we had, uh, he knew was a Christian, and there would be some, in, some discussion with them and then with us, his friends. And we were there that week really digging into the Word and talking to him about what Scripture said about our sin and about our need for Christ as a Savior, as the Savior. I remember very rationally and deliberately he said to us, looking at us, without eye, his eyes closed and head bowed, I believe this. This makes sense to me. I believe this must be true. And we were all excited knowing how sharp he was and and really what a powerful disciple we thought he could be in Christ if he had come to Christ. And and a few weeks went on and I kept up with him, but it seemed like almost as fast as he acknowledged it, which was something that was very difficult for him to do publicly like he did, he had not so much renounced it but didn't want to talk about it anymore. And it was gone that fast. It confused me. I know as a teenager, how could he have said that he had trusted Christ? And people will say, well, if you trust Jesus or if you pray the prayer, if you do this, boom, something changes. I didn't see it there. It didn't appear at all. Then there's another couple friends, one of which uh, was in the church for quite some time, under the word regularly, heard preaching regularly, grew up in a solid Christian home, Um, seemed deep to me, but in fact, would even be pretty outspoken at our school where there weren't many believers, and so we would be sharing that message, and he would give me courage to speak up about it. His junior year, his parents divorced, and they moved to a different town, and he had to leave the school for the last year and a half of his school schooling. Then he went into the military, and he had lots of struggles. Various trials came his way. I kept up with him, and I could tell Uh, slowly but definitely surely he was drifting away from any anchor in what he had professed as his faith to the point where he renounced it completely just a few years later. Ten years of seeming faithfulness, some fruit shown, some strength, and then it seemed be gone. How could it be? I didn't understand. Then there's some, uh, another friend, and I have a few friends that fit this category, but call him Jim. He was pretty founded as a believer, much like my other friend. Um, solid on the teaching of the word, strong family. Somewhere in college, he started to get this bug for wealth, basically. He determined that wealth would be the thing that would make him happiest. He didn't want to struggle like his parents struggled, and they really didn't struggle that bad, but in his mind, he wanted more than them. And that started to cloud out his overall view of life and to the point where it pointed him in. All his friendships were determined in how it would gain him some kind of advantage in the future professionally. And he really went after it. I mean, he was impressive with his abilities and how he could figure out business, 
uh, partnerships, associations, and that's what he went after. I mean, he went after it with full vigor. Now, along the way, he would still give lip service to believing in God. And I would refer to him as a Christian who was doing well, and I was sure that he would be generous with that, and he would be supporting the work of ministry. And, and I kept telling myself that, 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 you know, God calls some people to that kind of wealth, and he does. And really, they have a heavy burden because they are expected to uh, give generously. All of us are, but for them, it's just from a just a sheer perspective, it's, it's going to be more it will call, the more will be expected from them. But as he got into it, he got more and more into it to where everything was about perpetuating more, and it never was enough. And before you know it, this guy who was a Christian long before I'd known about Christ was no longer identifying as a Christian. And if you saw him today, you would not recognize him. Does it even say in his bio with his corporation, which they, used, they like to say they're church members or have something outside of the business they like? Not in his. It's all about him and the business. That's what he is identified with. So these three different friends, all of them in the end, don't seem to really be trusting in Christ any longer. What's happened? Why is this? Maybe you can think of people in your life that you wonder about like this as well. Jesus warns us that this kind of thing will happen as the word goes forward, and we have to recognize that it's part of what this life looks like. In verse 9 in the passage we have before us, if you look there, you'll see Jesus give a clear statement about why he's using this parable to explain these truths. The disciples asked him what the parable meant, which, by the way, bugs me a little bit that they had to ask him. Now, I kind of take the view that the disciples didn't fully trust in Christ until he rose again. So that could be the answer right there. They didn't get it either. But they asked the question that tons of people must have been wondering. What does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. So there's a gifting of God for certain people to know the mysteries of the secret of the kingdom of God. That which is laden in these stories. But for others, they are in parables. So that, and here's a quote from Isaiah 6, verse 9, which I'm sure everyone remembers. Seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. That's the part of Isaiah where God says sometimes he'll confound the sight of somebody so he can manifest his glory in another way. And of course, in Isaiah 6, that's when he's building up to making Isaiah the prophet that he is, as he has this vision of God. Uh, but it's, God, it's for God to reveal and also to conceal. So he'll tell a story with a spiritual reality. For some who have been given the secret of it, you're going to get it right away. You're going to hear this parable, the story, and you're like, I get that. I understand that. That's me, or that's somebody I know, or that's some phenomena that's true in the world of God's reality and spiritual life. And I get it, and, you, and it helps you. The other person, it's like, what does that mean? That's just, that completely makes no sense to me. For some he reveals, some he conceals. That's the nature of his word in general, but certainly true about parables. The seed is the word of God. The sower of the seed is God himself, and, or anyone who disperses the word of God in the surface, the heart of the recipient or the subject. What we find is a main lesson. The person's, a person's reception of God's word depends on the condition of their heart. And Jesus here compares four kinds of people with four kinds of soil or four kinds of surfaces that the seed would fall on, the word of God would fall on. Really, though, when it breaks down, there's just two kinds, right? There's good soil and there's bad soil. Let's look at the soils. The first one that the seed falls on is the path. So the word of God falls on the path. Verse 5, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path, 
and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Now, in antiquity, they didn't have farm implements like we have today that you drove over the field to tear it up or to seed. Then they had to hand till the land, and then they would walk through the land on paths that were made just by their walking, and then disperse the seed like the picture of the sower. But these paths became very hard where the farmer would walk. He didn't want to walk on all the land, all the land so he kept on those paths and threw from a distance. And they became footpaths. They even became uh, avenues for people to pass through when they were going through your land. They would walk on these footpaths, and they get harder and harder and harder. So if a seed fell on it, it wouldn't be able to penetrate. It wouldn't even be able to sink into the dirt to then start root sprouting roots and growing in any fashion. It was hard. This is the nature of that ground. So what does this mean? Well, the beauty of this parable, why we're starting here, Jesus lays it out wonderfully for us. Verse 11, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So in this case, you have this hardened path, and the seeds are very visible when they lay on it. So the devil, like a bird, flies along and plucks up the seed before it could ever have any real impact. Uh, It's really on the ground. The Word of God's there. It's clear. It's expressed, but it's not taken. Instead, the devil takes it before there's a chance for it to do anything of profit. It never penetrates the mind. It never touches the conscience. It never enters the heart, as Philip Ryken says easy pickings for birds to feed upon. Now, my first friend falls into this category a bit. Uh, Without distraction, he was exposed to the clear gospel message. He could repeat it back to you. It was there. The seed was there. It was on his lips. He could say it. He rationally analyzed it and said, that makes sense that if I have this problem that I need help and God can provide it in Christ, I believe that. He could say that. He could express it outwardly, but there was a hardness that did not let it penetrate, and it was snatched up in a way to the point now where he would not even barely remember that ever happened. The ones along the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. People like to give the devil all sorts of credit for their sins. I think most of it's unfounded. The devil's real. I'm not saying he's not, but the devil's not omnipresent or omniscient like God is. He can't be everywhere. And as important as we think we are, they're probably better targets. However, having said that, there is one area where the devil is ferociously active, and that is where the church puts forth the word. When believers are putting forth the word of God, you can be sure that's where the devil will be active, and his minions for that matter. But you can be certain that if the word of God's being preached and it falls on hard ground, the last thing the devil wants to do, who doesn't know all who are chosen like God knows, the last thing he wants is for fall on any surface and stay there long because God might do something to make it grow. So he's going to try to fetch it off there as fast as he can. I love what J.C. Ryle says concerning the devil's work as it relates to the word. But nowhere perhaps is the devil so active as in in a congregation of gospel hearers as in this place. Nowhere does he labor so hard to stop the progress of that which is good and to prevent men and women from being saved. From him come wandering thoughts, roving imaginations, listless minds, dull memories, sleepy eyes, fidgety nerves, weary ears, and distracted attention. In all these things, Satan has a great hand. 
People wonder, Ryle says, where these things come from and marvel how it is that they find sermons so dull and remember them so badly. They forget the parable of the sower. They forget the devil. There are hearts that are hard for whatever reason. It could be something that's happened in life that's made a person hard to God. It could be something that's overwhelmed them and has made them uh, impervious to anything that might penetrate. Whatever the case, when the word falls on something that hard, that indifferent, it gets snatched up very quickly. There's another surface that's referenced here by Jesus, the rock, the rocky soil as it's called in some translations. Verse 6 says, and some, that is the seed of the word, fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. This is referred to in uh, two other Gospels, and it seems clear enough that this is a reference to the kind of soil that's just shallow. So it looks like it's good on the surface, but as plants try to take root, it hits bedrock pretty quickly, and it's rocky, and it can no longer uh, dig in deep and hold itself firm, and the moisture is very, very inconsistent because of the bedrock, if there at all. It doesn't hold moisture below, so it dries quickly, and it can't get what, get what it needs. What does it mean exactly? Well, look at verse 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. This is shallow and superficial soil. That's true of many people's hearts. People may be spiritual, but that doesn't mean they're deep. And so they'll talk spiritually, they'll talk about God, or they'll talk about that which is metaphysical, but they're really shallow when it comes to anything deep about it. And that's what you find as the condition of many people's hearts. It affords no place for roots to grow and sink down deep. It could start to grow, it could look really excited at first, but it doesn't have a chance to continue because the rock is there below it. This reminds me of my friend who was pretty strong for quite some time, but then when the trials came into his life, he didn't have strength to hold. You can imagine a plant trying to get down into the roots, into the earth, but then it hits rock, and then a strong wind comes. Well, there's nothing underneath to hold it, so it topples over, and that's really how... I see my friend's life working. He seemed so excited. He had so much vigor. But then when these things that came to him uh, hit him, he couldn't stand. And he fell. Matthew Henry describes this soil or heart as one that is captivated by a temporary impression of the word. I always get nervous for celebrities who come to Christ. I don't doubt it's a genuine faith, but I'm always concerned that they'll get so much focus and so much pressure and so much attention, they haven't had a chance for roots to go down deep, and when the pressure comes upon them, they just get blown over. But I'm concerned for this for anybody, especially if the gospel being preached is one that doesn't tell the full story, that when you come to Christ, life will probably get more difficult for you. That's what Jesus taught. That's not what you hear on TV or from certain preachers. But the full gospel will share with you that the glory of it is in the eternal security we have forever and ever. But in this life we live, it's very likely, in fact, it's almost certain you're going to deal with heavy burdens. Ones you can't imagine even right now. And as your roots go deep in the faith, when they come, you'll be able to withstand it. But if they don't go deep in the faith, if you have a... a, a truncated view of who God is and what his will is like, then you will be blown over by it. And the excitement that was initial, as soon as it doesn't go your way, or 
a little bit into that, it's because you're going to fall over because the faith wasn't real, not the kind that saves. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. The thorns, this is the other soil. Some fell, verse 7, among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. You could picture this, a nice garden ready to plant your plants. You put your plants in there, and all of a sudden these weeds came up. I didn't plant any weed seeds. Where did they come from? Well, they're there, and they grow faster than your plants. That's what happens. Verse 14, what does this mean? And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Weeds grow faster than plants. The plants grow, but before you know it, the weeds grow up alongside. They choke out the plants. They cut off the sun. They make it impossible for the plants to grow any further, and the plants die. It could be good growing soil, but no sunlight means death to the plant. Troubles and cares can cause a person to to neglect the nourishment that his or her soul needs by the word. Always living at a superficial level with others, never going deeper, and then other things take over, take time, take affection, take importance. My other friend demonstrates the word falling among thorns. On the surface, the soil looks good. He grew up in a solid Christian home, regular exposure to the word, seeming fruit in his life through young adulthood. But then he catches that bug, that bug that hungers for status, for wealth, for importance, for prominence. All of these things require great energy to pursue and to attain. And then when you think you have them, they slip out of your hands and you're still striving for them again and again and again. And then you've invested so much of your life, you can't dare quit now or you're a quitter and you won't get those things. And then your life's gone and you spend all your time going after air. Yet the word was there, but it was choked out. Choked out by this pursuit of the things of the world and the concerns that come with it and the pleasures that come with it too. The final soil called the good soil. Some fell into the good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. So the purpose we know for the word is to fall onto the heart and for it to take root, to grow, and to bear fruit. That, that's what Jesus' will is for the word in our lives. Verse 15, what does this mean? As for that in the good soil... They are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So it's not hard, so it's allowed to penetrate. It's not shallow, so the roots can go deep. It's not choked out because it's focused singularly upon what it reveals, the word reveals. It's a heart that holds fast to it, longs for it. It's the thing that it really strives after. It has to do with reading it regularly, being exposed to it. Such a heart only finds itself in that condition because God grants it. So if you have that, if that's your desire, you could be sure that's not something you conjured. It's something God has given you or bestowed upon you. In fact, looking ahead to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the prophet Ezekiel says it in very vivid terms. It helps us. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It's what happens in a true believer when Their heart's been prepared to receive the word, and the word has its impact. Three players in this story. The seed, which is the word of God. The sower, 
God or anyone who disperses the word of God. These two are not variables. These are just what they are. But the surface, the heart of the recipient or the subject. Now, what can we learn from this? And how can this affect our lives? So much can be said. But on the basic level, as believers who are about propagating the word, preachers and laymen alike, all of us are ambassadors of Christ, recognize, I mean, parents as well, teachers, whoever you are, as you share the word with people, as you disperse the word, understand that it will fall on different kinds of soil. God governs the soil's condition ultimately. People are responsible for it, but it's God who can make bad soil good. We just need to spread the seed, and we need to not be... Uh, paralyzed when we don't see the results we expect, or ultra disappointed when we see somebody who says they believed and then doesn't later. Recognize that's part of this life, this side of glory. Uh, Don't ever stop dispersing the word even to someone who says they don't believe it any longer because God could do the work at any time. It should give us a great encouragement to keep spreading the seed liberally, just like the sower does. That's for sure part of the message. Another part of the message that I hope you helps you is recognize where a person may be in their life, Um, what might be happening to choke out or to stop the word from penetrating, having having its impact. Certainly, you could all think of individuals like I named um, in your life that fit this description. Maybe it's someone close to you. It could be a child, could be a a family member, a friend, whatever it may be, whoever it may be, you can relate. But what we should not miss here is probably the biggest lesson for us all. It's not so much about my friend who had that quick and then gone faith, if you will, if you want to call it that. It's not so much about my friend who grew up in the church and he looked strong, but then when the cares of the world came on, he got choked off with it. It's really not about uh, someone being shallow on the upfront and looking at them and saying, well, they started out strong and now they're not. It's not so much about my ability to assess you. It really has more to do with what do I do when the word is planted in me? What happens when I hear the scripture, when the scripture is exposed to me, what is my response? Boy, that's a good question for Tony more than it is for my friends. Um, What a question. I mean, if my child brings me the word, do I not listen to it because I'm hard of heart and think I can't learn from someone younger than me or someone not as smart as me or whatever I may think? Is my heart so hard that I will only listen and only be taught by someone who fits this description? Or has life become difficult for me, even as a professing believer? I'm a little upset with God. He hasn't given me exactly what I want over here. So I'm not coming to church to really hear the word. I'm going through the motions. I'm just going to do this, but I'm not open to the word. I'm really kind of hardened to it, even though I'll tell you all the right things about being a believer. Um, maybe that's part of the lesson I should get from this. Maybe I'm not as deep as I think I am. Maybe I'm able to cite some catechism questions and give you some deep theological insights about election, but when the storm comes, I fall over because it's not real, and I don't really believe the sovereignty of God, not if it doesn't give me what I need. Maybe that could be a problem for a believer even to suffer under that kind of shallowness. It could be that even as a believer, walk with Christ for a long time, but I'm catching the bug because, boy, there's money to be made over here. I could be doing better like this in retirement. I won't have to work as hard if I make a few moves here. If I slight here a little bit, then down there it'll be better off. If I spend time, less time with my kids here, they'll appreciate it later when I can leave them an inheritance. Or I start filling my mind with all the values of this earth, and before you know it, my devotion to Christ gets less and less and less. And the Word of God, who has time for that? Maybe this isn't just about assessing people who are not believers. 
maybe this is for believers to be honest about what propensities can still lurk in our own hearts. The Apostle Peter says, and I close with, talking to us Christians, the church, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth of the gospel, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for the receptivity of our hearts to your word. We see from this teaching of our Lord that your word falls upon human hearts. And if those hearts are in some way hindered, the word will not penetrate, take root, grow, produce fruit. Lord, make our hearts to be good soil for your word. We know this is your work, so it has to be something you do. Lord, convict us, and in convicting us, give us assurance that this conviction reveals that you are working on our heart and you are making us receptive. And we praise you for conviction. Make our lives to bear much gospel fruit. In cases where some here do not have ears to hear, please send your spirit to give them spiritual life and insight as only you can do. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let us together turn in response and sing. Also in preparation for the Lord's Supper, 